So this is one of my current favorite poems about judgments, and it was written by Ted Weinstein. And I heard a rumor that he actually wrote this poem uh, after a retreat here at Spirit Rock. I haven't confirmed that, but uh, it could definitely have happened here. It's called Ways I've Been a Bad Meditator. I have swallowed repeatedly. I have thought about eating a piece of dark chocolate. I have moved my leg because I couldn't endure the pain in my knee. I have wondered whether I left the oven on. I have tried to slow my breathing. I have looked at my watch before the meditation bell rang. I have thought about whether to register for a retreat this coming summer. I have thought about kissing the woman sitting on the cushion to my left. I have thought about shushing the heavy breathing man on the cushion to my right. I have wanted the teacher to notice how well I am meditating. (laughs) I have wondered how the teacher can really meditate while constantly checking to see if it's time to ring the bell. I have missed my old girlfriend. I remembered why I broke up with my old girlfriend. I've had the thought that I cannot date anybody who is not a meditator. I've listened to the sound of the rain. I've worried if I close the windows of my car. I've wondered if living in the moment means I don't have to put money in a retirement account. I've imagined going to Stockholm to accept the Nobel Prize in meditation. I've thought about how my goddaughter laughs when I turn her upside down. I've wanted this feeling of joy to continue. I have focused on the rising and falling of my stomach while breathing when I was trying to focus on the sensation of my breath going in and out at my nostrils. I've decided meditation retreats are a complete waste of time. I've wanted to ring the bell at the end of the group sitting. I've opened my eyes to look and see if the teacher's eyes are open. I've been annoyed at the bird outside that won't stop cawing. I've wondered if it's time to buy a new meditation cushion. I've thought about making up items for this list. I've wondered if I could ever complete the list. I've decided I will never achieve enlightenment. I have told myself, I'm a bad meditator. So if any of those uh, have been thoughts that you've had or thoughts that you can imagine having, you're in good company. And what I want to share about and reflect on with you this evening uh, is is just kind of my perspective on this uh, integrative approach of working with judgments and a bit more of of an overview of this path. And like Donald, when I think about the components of this path, uh, I think of mindfulness, I think of the importance of the somatic element and working in the body. Reflect on the importance of the complementary heart practices that we've been engaging in with uh, so much sincerity and uh, curiosity as we each begin to more and more make them our own. Uh, This piece about inquiry into habitual patterns Uh, I also reflect on the importance at various times on the journey of complementary modalities that aren't specifically in this meditative tradition. 
You know, so sometimes therapy is a really important cycle of all kinds. Sometimes body work is a really important cycle, any different modality in doing this work. You know, it's not one way. It's the journey of our lives and how to be increasingly less reactive and more open and free. And I definitely think about the importance of having wise friends and community, uh, that this is in moments too hard to do alone, and in the moments when we celebrate, to be able to share that joy uh, and celebration with others. It's very key. So, in exploring these aspects this evening, I thought I would start with the level of the body. And I mentioned at the beginning of this retreat that One of the things that I did this winter was I co-led a pilgrimage group to India. And we went for a number of weeks to all the different sacred sites in the um, kind of the core of the Buddhist tradition. So we went to Bodh Gaya, where the Buddha was enlightened. We went to Saranath, where he turned the wheel of Dhamma and gave his first teachings on the Four Noble Truths. We went to Kashinagar where he died, and we went to Lumbini where he was born. I had never been to any of these places before, and yet I found myself leading, or co-leading, fortunately, this pilgrimage, uh, which was an adventure in and of itself, and probably a story for another time. But in reflecting on the body level of the journey, in working with transforming the judgmental patterns of mind, A story came to mind from this trip immediately, and I checked with the pilgrim to make sure it was okay to share it, although I won't share her name. Because it was very interesting, though we were on the road and doing very long days, uh, you know, 12-hour bus rides, the Indian buses, uh, among other things, it was very much like a retreat. And yet it was a retreat that was interactive, in community, in communication, in relation to each other in very obvious ways. And we were all thrown completely outside of our comfort zone. Um, Many people had never been to India before, and even the ones that had, uh, there's something about India that no matter how many times we've been, it throws us outside our comfort zone one way or another. It's one of the reasons I love it. So we all arrived together for the first time in the Bangkok airport in Thailand, and we're about to catch a flight to Bodh Gaya to begin our journey. And the group gathered together. There were 14 pilgrims on this trip, so it's just a small group. And immediately what happened was people's judgments started kicking up. Imagine that, being in a foreign country, Uh, with a group of people coming together that they didn't know, about to go on an unknown trip. Can you imagine? Judgments, of course. Um, And one of my main roles on this pilgrimage was to facilitate and support um, the process as practice and hold the practice space uh, of our journey, and also to support the group dynamic, uh, because we're doing it in community. So there we were, people were coming together, and everyone's judgments were getting kicked up, and people kept pulling me aside and saying, Heather, I'm giving myself a really hard time, I'm afraid nobody likes me, and then somebody else, Heather, 
I'm really judging myself. I'm so uncomfortable being here in Thailand. It's so hot. And now we're going to go to India. And I just can't believe it. Heather, I don't think I like any of these people. You know? <laughs> um, there was one woman in particular who, in that first process of the journey, had a really hard time. And what happened when she joined with the group was tremendous anxiety um, arose for her. And it flooded her system initially. And she got really scared. And it was, you know, in in a lot of ways fueled by uh, self-judgments and and being afraid of being judged by others. It was very difficult. But because she's a meditator, she reached out to a couple of people and was able to get some perspective that, ah, the view that she was having of this community of people wasn't necessarily so. She had this idea of what everybody thought of her. And then to hear reflected back, no, that's not true. That's not what I think of you at all. And I worked with her at the beginning of the pilgrimage, and I taught her some tools, just some basic tools for working with that anxiety that the, um, that the judgments were fueling and that were fueling the judgments in her system. And as she worked with these very simple tools over a couple of days, she found in moments that the anxiety could start to diminish, and then she found more consistently that it was workable, And then she ended up manifesting as this beautiful example of somebody who had basically met her own demons and was then able to hold the rest of the community in meeting theirs in different versions of their demons because many different challenges uh, visited our group during that trip. I don't think of our journey here as different We come, we get set off by things, the reactivity rises, the charge gets high, it feels overwhelming in moments. Uh, We remember that there are people sitting at our backs. You check in with us, we offer tools, you make them your own, and then the service continues. We'll each be able to sit with more and more openness with a variety of challenges with everyone that we meet because we've faced our own. That's an important part of our journey. So you might be curious to know what were the tools. I was thinking about what we were talking about. Donald spoke of this last night, of these two tracks that we're taking on this retreat, one of them being kind of working with the judgmental mind and content itself, We might consider that more of the area of challenge um, or perhaps an area of negativity, not necessarily, but perhaps. And then the complementary aspect of the heart practices, um, some of the cousins to the heart practices, whether it's gratitude or appreciation or forgiveness, um, and bringing in the wholesome and the skillful and the beautiful qualities that every one of us carry. And calling them in and valuing them, um, encouraging them to increase. I think of the body as the center of those two tracks. So if we're going to generalize, we could say, oh, the the judgments are hard, they're negative. And, you know, the, the heart practices are... Well, they can be hard too, right? But they're positive. So I'm, I'm overgeneralizing deliberately here. And then the body could be the neutral place in the middle. 
Now, I'm not saying the experience of body is neutral. We all know it's not. But it's a center point. And for so many of us, just the aspect of being embodied is impossibly hard. Uh, For me, I'm going to be completely honest with you, it was a 10-year journey to go from being pretty much 99% disembodied to, I don't know what percent embodied now, but very embodied, not perfectly embodied. We're not interested in perfection here because there's something about perfection that actually defies the law of impermanence. It means always. So it's a place where we can settle in order to support the work, and it's a place that when we get really, really upset inside, we can resettle to support the work. When Donald was introducing the dropping down practice this afternoon, he mentioned that when we call up a judgment to work with, uh, and tell ourselves the story of the judgment for a few minutes to kind of get it riled up and going and singing its tune the way that it does, and then dropping the attention down into the core of the body to see what's there. The suggestion was to not choose a judgment 10 on the Richter scale, uh, one being uh, almost non-existent level judgment and 10 being you know a tsunami level judgment, And he also said uh, that it's not skillful to choose a judgment where we know there's a lot of trauma backing it up. But then there's this question about uh, what if we call up a judgment and we don't actually know, we think it's a 7, but we call it up and it turns into a 12 plus. That happens. How do we work with that? Donna was suggesting pulling out right away. How do we pull out? What's that process? That's what I'm interested in. So in starting at the beginning with this uh, somatic level, with what I wanted to share, um, the several tools that I'm about to share first feels important to mention. They are deceptively simple. They're so obvious that our adult um, cognitive mind goes, what is she talking about? You know, that, that sounds so simple. How could that be helpful? Um, but what I'm speaking to here is a much older layer of mind, we could say. It's the level of the nervous system. And the nervous system is ancient. It doesn't care about how grown up we are and how together we are and... Uh, It's just doing its piece about keeping us alive. And it does it very well. Uh, And coming into relationship with it is really important in terms of working with charge in our emotional and physical lives. A couple of days ago during one of the meditations, I suggested that at various times during a meditation it can be helpful to ground. Because there's this piece about ground and space. Uh, So even before we call up a judgment, even when things are well, to give ourselves the stability of dropping the attention down, for example, into the feet or into the hands, lower in the body, actually connects the physical system with a sense of groundedness 
that can then support us as we notice, oh, the emotions just rose. Ah, the charge level just went through the roof. We create a base of resiliency uh, by doing that. And it's a simple thing to do, but it's actually hard to remember. Mindfulness is very simple and very hard to remember. And it's one of the reasons that I like the Pali term for mindfulness is sati. And it can mean to you know, pay attention in a non-judgmental way. But another definition of sati is to recollect the attention or to remember. So it reminds us, oh yeah, the key is actually the remembering. Once we remember, it kind of starts to take care of itself. So we might remember uh, that we've got ground and that we've got feet and hands and to just rest and feel those sensations allow the whole kind of system to drop a bit, a different way of dropping down, right? <laughs> uh, then let's say, you know, there was a description today that was shared in our community of, oh, I tried the dropping down or I tried the meditation and then I didn't feel comfortable in my own skin, you know, that feeling of, it doesn't feel quite right. Um, it's a classic description of reactivity arising on some level, whether it's energetic, whether it's emotional, whether it's cognitive, something stirring in there, right? One thing that we all learned because somebody told us when we were younger or older, uh, this simple thing about, hey, it's okay, take a breath. Now, why do people always remind us about that? It's okay, take a breath, calm down, take a breath. Why? Because when we bring more oxygen in the system, things calm down. So we can remember to do that when we're feeling boxed in, uptight, or otherwise kind of uh, messy inside while we sit and while we live. Ah, take a breath. Some of you noticed in our groups uh, that often between each person's share, I'll just take a deeper breath. Why? because I want to help support and integrate what was shared from that person and take it in and feel it and ground it and then turn to the next person. What is your story? So it's a way of supporting a digestion process. Sometimes it needs to be even more explicit. And another practice that I think of is actually a practice of settling the nervous system is opening the eyes. And Again, obvious statement I'm about to make, but noticing that there is enough air in the room to breathe with whatever we're holding. It sounds so obvious, but when we get uptight inside, the breath gets shallow and everything starts to, you know, people describe it, oh, the walls are closing in. We could open our eyes. We could actually look around the room and realize, wow, we can do it right now. We don't need to make eye contact. Just Amazing, there continues to be enough air in here to breathe with whatever's happening. There's things like checking where the exits are. Now I know every single one of us knows where the exits are. If I asked any one of you, you could tell me exactly where they are. In fact, there are five doors Uh, and and a bunch of windows that we could pop the screens out of and hop out of if we really needed to. Why is this important? Uh, Because in terms of fight, flight, and freeze, to know where the escape routes are when the charge gets really high, um, 
allows our system to know that it can respond skillfully. And so we don't need to shut down around our experience. We can know, ah, if I need to go, I can go. And we rarely need to actually leave the room, but just to know and to look and to see and to not tell ourselves, oh, it's okay, it's okay, when we're feeling really, really worked up inside about whatever, but to actually look and say, ah, they're still there. These are all um, simple tools. And the problem with them is they're so simple that our very put-together state of mind says, oh, I don't want to look. I know where the exits are. Or, oh, I know about grounding. I don't really need to feel my feet. And so we don't do it. Uh, And in order to support the nervous system to settle, we can't tell it to settle. We need to support it to settle. So that's kind of the somatic piece. Then there's the heart practices. Um, And in terms of the context of this retreat, we're looking at them as antidotes. We're saying, hey, if you're sitting or moving around in the retreat and doing something and you get blown over by the judgment storm of the century, um, you know, back out, bring in an antidote change the lens completely. It's not actually denying the judgment storm. It's giving it enough space and ground so that we can work with it skillfully in the future. We can say, ah, I'm in pain. I care when it's painful. Or, oh, I can bring friendliness of loving kindness. The support of mudita or sympathetic joy of when we're out walking and the sun is so bright. And have you noticed how... It's just right now, the green of the hills. In two weeks, that green will be different, and the blue of the sky. And I just walk up that hill every time and take it in and feel the joy. And then I'll notice one of you taking in something out on the land, and I'll feel so much happiness for you, and that's more of the mudita flavor. It's not cheating, We're not here to, oh, just dig in and fix these judgments and nothing else is relevant here. I had a story like that for a long time. I had this story, I believed it 100%, which was, if I just suffer enough, if I just dig into every crevice of suffering in my life and examine it and chew on it and try to fix it and all this, then I'll be okay. And then I'll be free. I was so wrong. I was so wrong. Because what I was missing is I was pushing very hard, and then I couldn't actually stay with the process because the overwhelm would come in. You know? And so to bring in these antidotes, these additional supports, actually help us meet the moment more fully, whatever it is. And then there's the equanimity, which holds it all. It's the wise balanced mind and heart which says, ah, in this scenario, uh, the, the, the story I'm telling myself about that totally judgmental situation, because, I mean, have we not called in the muse of judgment here? I'm sure there are cycles when you're thinking about how you judge a lot more than when you're running around in your life because we've called in the muse. Uh, so it's coming, it's coming, and realize, oh, everybody's playing their role perfectly. There's actually enough space, enough wisdom to realize, oh yeah, look at that. We're all so habituated that they said this and I said this and I could have actually said their line and my line and, you know, 
we're just habitual creatures. Can we have enough space of mind and heart uh, to hold the reality of that? So we'll be working more with this joy and equanimity uh, coming up in the retreat. Uh, Then we continue using the mindfulness to look at some of the kind of universal patterns that appear incredibly personal, and we actually share them together. So they have personal manifestations, and then we share them all together. One of the key ones that I like to look at are the cycles of inflation and deflation. And they work internally, they work interpersonally, and they work collectively on a societal level. And there's an addictive nature to the cycle. Um, Some of you have been bringing up, well, what about the positive judgments? And what we've been saying is they're there too, And in this retreat, we are definitely emphasizing more kind of the quote-unquote negative judgments. And we've said that in some ways it's because they seem to be more problematic. But many of you, of course, have had the insight of, you know, the positive ones where every bit is problematic. And in fact, they feed off each other. And I think of it in terms of like a pendulum. So, you know, the way the pendulum works is it has its center, we might call that the middle way. You know, the very first teaching that the Buddha gave after his awakening, before he even spoke about the Four Noble Truths, he talked about this middle way and the cycle of extremes, which apply in so many different ways, these cycles of extremes. So this is a good one to look at in terms of judgments, the inflation and deflation. He said, you know, my friends, there are these two extremes which ought to be avoided by one who has gone forth on the spiritual path. What two? You know, the extreme of, you know, in this context, basically be overindulgence and the extreme of overdenial. So in one side, we have the extreme of inflation. I am the best meditator that ever hit planet Earth, and I actually am going to go to Stockholm and get that Nobel Peace Prize in meditation. For sure. And then the other side, it's a setup. Because when we do that, and then we sit down on the cushion, and we've got our posture, everything's going great, I've taken my seat. What are all these thoughts doing? They're going berserk. Swing. I'm the worst meditator that ever hit planet Earth. I hope nobody knows how bad it is. If they put a sound system to my head, you know, I'd be shunned out of the retreat center. There's that side. And it swings, and it can start... Uh, slowly. Sometimes it doesn't, but it builds. You know, it's like, oh, doing pretty good. Oh, not doing pretty good. Oh, wow, you know, I really got this meditation thing. Oh, actually, I, you know, I, I was mistaken. This is no good. Oh, I'm the best meditator that ever hit planet Earth. The worst meditator. And it just swings and they feed off of each other. They just feed and feed and feed. Now, that's an easy one to use here, the thing about our sense of self as a meditator, but what if we took that piece that we hate about ourselves and the ways that we must overcompensate because if we actually lived 24-7 from that place of deep self-hatred, it would just be too violent. And so we overcompensate and make ourselves better than we need to be in our own mind because it's so painful over here in the self-hatred side. 
And what we see is that our lives actually collect and reflect uh, these cycles. We actually start to manifest lives and personality structures uh, off of these cycles, these addictive cycles. So this very famous quote from the Dhammapada, what we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. When one speaks or acts with a confused mind, suffering follows as the wheel of the cart follows the beast that draws the cart. What we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday and our present thoughts build our life of tomorrow. Our life is the creation of our mind. If one speaks or acts with an unconfused mind, joy follows one as their own shadow. When I think about kind of these two pieces, we all have seeds of confusion in the mind, and we all have seeds of what I like to call basic goodness, you know, or almost a fundamental integrity in the mind. And it's kind of, what are we watering and giving sun to? This is what manifests. And of course we water and give sun to both sets of seeds. Uh, And how they grow and what they grow, uh, in the end, we don't have a lot of control over. And yet, uh, we still cultivate, we still direct our minds uh, and our intentions so that uh, results may arise at the appropriate time, which we're not in control of. You know, oh, I sat here, I'm trying really hard on this retreat. How come I'm not free yet? <laughs> because it hasn't all come together for whatever our idea of freedom is to come together yet. But there might still be moments of freedom. That's what I love about a retreat like this. We can take our ideas about things and break them down into their component pieces. So like the idea of freedom, how come I'm not free yet? I've been here for... How long have we been here? Two days. Shouldn't I be free yet? Well, you know, maybe, maybe not, but I would be shocked if each of us hadn't had some moment of simple, ordinary freedom in the last 48 hours. The building blocks. There's a quote from uh, one of our late meditation masters from Cambodia, the Venerable Mahagosananda, that I love to use as a uh, practice instruction actually in my life every day uh, in terms of how this works. Uh, So it goes like this. The thought becomes the word. The word transforms into the deed. The deed hardens into the character. And the character manifests as the destiny. So watch your thoughts with care and let them spring from love out of respect for all beings. It's like that's how it builds. What we think about, we tend to say. It's hard to say something if there wasn't some sort of (coughs) flicker of prior thought. (laughs) And what we say tends to influence how we act. And when we build the actions, uh, we create our personality structure or character. And that has a lot to do with the choices and opportunities that open and don't open in our lives in terms of our so-called destiny. And it's really what we're doing here. We're taking each thought, whether a judgment or the absence of a judgment, 
which are actually really important to notice. I hope that you're noticing when thoughts are not judgmental also. And we're watching them with care. And we're encouraging them to spring from a basic friendliness as much as is possible. When they're not friendly, we're bringing a friendly attitude to it. And why are we doing this? You know, out of the intention to more fully respect ourselves and all beings. Einstein has a quote that I quite love. He says, We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking that we used when we created them. We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking that we used when we created them. There needs to be a different choice, a different way of being. To me, one of the pivotal moments of the Buddhist spiritual path before he became the Buddha, so when he was still Prince Siddhartha, passionately engaged in the spiritual quest, you know, with the aim of enlightenment or bust. And he pushed really hard. He had a lot of insight, a lot of concentration develop, uh, a lot of freedom develop in some way. But he also over-efforted, denied the experience of his body as the vehicle for awakening, got very sick, almost died, uh, got out of balance, he got out of balance because his passion was so strong. You know, it's good intention, but it went a little out of whack. We've all gone through that. We will go through that again. And at some point in his journey, he asked himself this question. I think it's pivotal on a spiritual path and certainly working with judgments. He said, huh, you know, my body is weak. I'm almost dead. Something is not right. Something isn't working here. And the question he asked was, might there be another way? Might there be another way? We cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. Might there be another way? And it's the invitation of mindfulness, is the choice uh, and the fullness of the options available. And it's a creative process. Options can arise to us about how to deal with X, Y, and Z that we may have never thought of before, which is amazing because when they've done studies, they've said something like 95% plus of the thoughts that we're having right now we've had before. So to have a new thought is very radical. I thought I would talk a little bit about a specific uh, technique that uh, is helpful on this journey of judgments. And in fact, we use it often in regular insight meditation retreats. And I like to use it in the spirit of humor and playfulness. Because, you know, historically, when I was working with judgments, it was so serious. It was as serious as anything. And I believed them. They were real. This is true. It's horrible. And how do I get out of this thing, basically? So I work with this particular tool with a real sense of humor. Uh, And I thought I would share with you a little cartoon from Life in Hell. Some of you know Life in Hell cartoons. So it's this teacher sitting on a platform, or actually he's standing on a platform. There's a whole bunch of uh, little bunny students sitting in the uh, rest of the hall, And he has a cushion, and on the cushion is a thumbtack. 
And there's this one student in the back of the hall going, <laughs> and the teacher says, to whomever put the thumbtack on my meditation pillow, I highly doubt that you will ever achieve inner peace. Yeah. No judgment intended. So we've got to have a sense of humor with this. Uh, in a way, uh, this technique, and it's, it has an acronym, which I like because acronyms are easier to remember. It's called RAIN, R-A-I-N. It's another version of the dropping down practice, truthfully. Uh, and I wanted to bring it in because some of you are probably already familiar with this tool. So again, we don't always have to be using new tools. We can fall back on you know, what we've already used, or maybe you'll weave this in somehow, or remember it later when it's needed, right? So RAIN, it starts with R, which stands for recognize. A stands for accept. I stands for investigate. And N stands for either non-identification or, in some ways, I prefer not taking it so personal, whichever one works for you. So recognize is our basic mindfulness practice. In inside meditation, we use the mental noting practice of calling it like it is. That's recognize. So in terms of working with the judgments, one of the things we haven't brought in yet that can be kind of fun with the R is counting judgments. And I especially like to count them at meals. They just seem to be a good time to count judgments. And once you get to 276, you'll either be in tears or in hysterics or both. You know, because you realize this is, this is ludicrous. The mind is just burping up these judgments. You know, it's no different than having a burping attack. And it comes and it goes. Recognize, recognize, recognize. 67, okay. 69, just keep going. I also like creative mental notes. That's what I call them. You know, the, the standard mental noting practice is just judgment, judgment, judgment. I'll throw in things that make me smile and remind me to accept and not take it so personally. So sometimes I'll say to myself, you know, another judgment comes. I'll say, this is from Wizard of Oz, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I don't know where that came from. I was just sitting in a retreat this one time and the thoughts just kept coming and coming. It's just garbage. It's like, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Then I smiled and then those thought bubbles pop and then it's present again. So you can make up your own fun ones you know, that, that indicate to you that there's a recognition, but also that there's a lightness of being. No, it's not as personal as it appears. So the A is for accept, and I'm already moving into that. It's like the ways that we can find to allow ourselves to smile to ourselves, uh, to kind of giggle to ourselves, are really supportive. Uh, and Thich Nhat Hanh talks about the yoga of smiling. He talks about when we bring a smile to our face, it uplifts the mind and heart out of the mire of what we might be grappling with. Uh, so uh, sometimes the suggestion is, oh, we could just sit and meditate and bring a smile to our face. Some people like to do that. Some people think it's way too contrived. It doesn't matter. It's just skillful means. But in the moments when you can drop in a creative mental note or giggle at the 67th judgment in the last five minutes, it brings a lightness that allows us to meet 
that experience and then investigate more deeply, which is the I. So the dropping down practice is, you know, really, we're bringing up a judgment, we're recognizing it, there's a spirit of acceptance, we're dropping down into the body, and what are we doing? We're investigating. Uh, And so too with the RAIN acronym. The investigation uh, is suggested to happen in the foreground as the body. It doesn't mean that there might not be thoughts, uh, but allowing the somatic or emotional resonance in the body to be in the foreground. So we recognize what's going on, we accept it, and then we drop the attention down and go, what's going on here? And I was thinking about when we judge others. And one of the things about judging others is that we tend to really believe it. And we can build quite a case for why the judgment we have for this other person is true. And what's complicated about that, of course, is that there usually is some information or wisdom uh, within that set of judgments. And so it gets very complex. And that's part of what makes judgments so complex, is there actually is information and discernment in it. But it's clouded over by a huge amount of reactivity, so we can't use the information or wisdom to be skillful, basically. One of the little techniques that I use in terms of investigation when the judgments are happening towards others and acknowledging this thing about believing them and building a case uh, comes from uh, one of my colleagues. Uh, His name is Ajahn Amaro, uh, a teacher to me for sure, but I've also been teaching with him for a long time. Uh, And we would, for many years, we worked with youth together and teaching them these tools. Uh, It's very interesting work. And one of the things that he said to the teenagers one year when we were teaching this retreat that I took on as my own practice, he said, ah, you know, when you've got, he wasn't specifically talking about judgments. He said, when you've got a thought, and especially about somebody, if it's about somebody else, and you're really believing that thought, you could ask yourself, now he's a Brit. So I always say it to myself in a British accent, which I'm terrible at, but it makes me smile. So he said, you could ask yourself, is that so? (laughs) Just ask yourself, is that so? It's such a great inquiry tool. There we are, we're judging somebody else. It's going on and on. We've built our entire case. And all of a sudden we hear this British accented voice saying to us, is that so? We might smile and lighten up and go, huh. Is this the only pair of glasses that reflect reality right now? You know, it's kind of like the pilgrim uh, on this trip to India. She was wearing this pair of judgment glasses. The whole world was revealed through that. And in fact, there were other options for the field of vision. When she looked and said, ah, is it really so? Uh, We can check in with the underlying mind state and body state, the same as the dropping down practice. I feel like this retreat has an a abundance of inquiry techniques, and it's, it's one of the things that I like about this retreat. There's, there's no absence of inquiry. And a lot of other retreats I teach, it's a common question, well, is it ever okay to think about things? Is it ever okay to inquire? We're going to be continuing to offer a bunch of different ways to skillfully inquire. And again, we'll take on the ones that work for us. 
So I think we'll leave the investigation there. And then this non-identification or not taking it so personally. One of the ways that I do it in terms of bringing in a sense of humor and a sense of playfulness is I'll exaggerate the thought. So let's say there's a self-judgment about uh, you know, how I am in relationship to my family and you know, why couldn't I be more uh, patient and why couldn't I, and oh, and, and why are they that way and on and on and on the way that we do. And I'll actually exaggerate it because it feels really personal. It's me and my family. I mean, that's a setup. We've got the I and mine right there. So it's a setup for being caught. And so I'll start exaggerating it. I'll say, I'll make it even bigger and more dramatic than the original thoughts. Just just realize, oh yeah, I'm making a drama out of nothing. Especially when we're sitting on the cushion, I'm just sitting here. The crickets are chirping. It's a lovely evening. I'm making this whole drama. And I'll exaggerate it even bigger for a moment to see, oh yeah, I'm taking this very personally. I could just relax and realize that everybody's got a me and a family and there's always issues and they're coming and going and everything's fine in this moment. Sometimes I'll sing to myself the kind of incessant judgment thoughts and I'll sing them in an operatic voice internally. You know, I'm the worst thing that ever happened. I can't believe I was even born. On and on and on. I mean, it's really hard to take it personally when we give it some space. Pema Chodron says, it's very helpful to realize that the emotions we have, the negativity and the positivity, are exactly what we need to be fully human, fully awake, and fully alive. So we just take what's being offered to us, these thoughts, these sensations, these emotions, and we just realize, oh yeah, these are exactly what is needed to be fully human in this moment. And could also be fully awake and fully alive with these very same conditions in this very same moment. We don't need a bigger, better, prettier life to be free or a bigger, better, prettier self. What a relief. It's a relief to me anyway. One time there was a conversation about the Buddha from some of the Buddhist students and somebody uh, basically who was not a part of the community uh, studying under the Buddha came in and said, basically had a judgment. And they said, you know, uh, this contemplative monk uh, whom you praise is actually a, is actually a nihilist. Uh, he doesn't declare anything. He was totally judging, you know, and very uh, caustic, you know, very sharp. And just came in. The Buddha wasn't there at that moment, but they did it to his face too, constantly. So many of the suttas or the teachings of the Buddha are his response to somebody coming in and blasting him with all kinds of views, opinions, and judgments. So what was the response from his the Buddha's senior students? He said, they said to this person, Ah, friend, you know, I tell you that actually the Buddha declares two things, you know. He's not uh, denying. He's not 
he is declaring something. He's declaring two things. He's declaring that this is skillful and this is unskillful. And that's a teaching. And I thought, huh. You know, that's interesting. It's like here comes in this judgment. And again, they were speaking for the Buddha, which of course, whenever we're speaking for somebody, it gets a little bit complex. But just bringing it down to the bare bones, not about this or that or all the content and complexity, just, you know, the Buddha actually does respond to your very complaint and judgment. And what he talks about is that this is skillful and this is unskillful. It's such a great way to do a practice. We just move around in this retreat and we can notice, oh yeah, that was skillful. Oh yeah, that was unskillful. And we don't need to add a lot of extra to it. Skillful and unskillful are part of being a human being living a life. Then there's the importance of wise friends. Uh, you know, and some of these friends are personal friends, and some of them are, I think of them as more universal friends, contexts like this on a retreat where we might not know many people personally, got our universal spiritual friends. And, you know, really, friends are mirrors. I had this memory of a time when I was having a lot of judgments towards spiritual communities. And I was being quite vocal about it. So I was judging the spiritual community that I was in for being, you know, not good enough to this, to that. And I was going on and on and on and building my case. Mm-hmm. And I was with a friend and he looked at me. I went on and on and on. And he looked at me and he said, well, aren't you the queen of judgmental Buddhism? You know? It was such a wake-up call. You know? Oh, right. Right. The queen of judgmental Buddhism. It's actually one of the mental notes I use for myself now when I am being the queen of judgmental Buddhism. I'll go, ah, oh, honey, the queen of judgmental Buddhism again, are you? Uh-huh. That's interesting. You know, friends are mirrors. We're mirrors for each other. Uh, the admirable qualities and the not-so-admirable qualities. So I was interested to see what the Buddha would have to say about what makes an admirable friend. And one of the many suttas that he shared about what he thought made an admirable friend, first of all, he said, uh, what makes an admirable friend is somebody who watches other people and when they're skillful, emulates that. And in particular... uh, one might watch other people to check and see uh, their conviction and confidence. Uh, And that's not like overinflated confidence. That's grounded, mature, wise confidence. And when they see it, they emulate it. One might watch for admirable friends who have maturity in virtue or integrity, basic integrity, and emulate that. One might watch for admirable friends who have a mature sense of generosity, Uh, caring, giving, and emulate that. And one might watch for admirable friends who carry a quality of wisdom and begin to emulate that. Because it's contagious. When we're in a room full of people who are actively judging, it sets off our judging and we join in the game. And when we're in a room full of people who are manifesting uh, these qualities, it reminds us that we can manifest that way too.
Another quote from Pema Chodron. She says, others will always show you exactly where you are stuck. They say or do something and you automatically get hooked into a familiar way of reacting, shutting down, speeding up, or getting all worked up. When you react in the habitual way with anger, greed, and so forth, it gives you a chance to see your patterns and work with them honestly and compassionately. But... Without others provoking you, you remain ignorant of your painful habits and cannot train in transforming them into the path of awakening. That's the moment of that that irritating person or the so-called difficult person in our loving-kindness practice, and we say, thank you very much. (laughs) Appreciate it. That was my teachable moment for today. (laughs) So... I hope that while we're here in moments when it's available that uh, we can really take heart in the fact that we aren't doing this practice by ourselves alone, the same as we aren't doing this practice for ourselves alone. And really feel the people who have your back, literally, uh, for those who have people who have their back, literally, and at the sides, and kind of lose heart, and then we glance over without making eye contact and notice somebody else kind of taking the next step on the walking path. We go, okay, if they can do it, I can do it. We do this together. And we inspire each other. Yeah, we're judging each other. That's what we do. But we also inspire each other. In moments, every one of us will become the person that keeps us going or that reminds us of a way we could manifest, that we'd forgotten we could manifest. It's one of the beautiful things about community. So I'll just close with a poem from Donna Faltz, the writer, which is called Allow. There is no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in, the wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and successes. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. That's what I have to offer for reflection this evening. And thank you for the kindness and hopefully less judgmentalness of your attention.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.